one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. My name is Jacob, and today with me again is Liam. How goes it, Liam? Goes well, Jacob. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man, of course. Uh, you know, I wanted to go ahead and cosplay as a Japanese soldier during the uh, Guadalcanal campaign, so I just got lost in the jungle for three weeks and nearly starved to death, so it was, it was a pretty fun oh, time. There you go. I was cosplaying as an American soldier, so I built an airfield in my parking lot's apartment, or my apartment's oh, parking and, lot. Oh, and did, did you get bombed? Not yet, but that might soon happen here. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I hope I hope you uh, I hope your navy's in pretty good spirits. I, I hope nothing bad happens to them. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna go ahead. So this is, in case you couldn't guess, this is the third episode of the Guadalcanal campaign. So we had two previous episodes. If you haven't listened to those, go give them a listen to. So in those episodes, we covered the playing stages and the Marines landing on Guadalcanal, some of the naval battles. And the Battle of Teneru and the Battle of, uh, or Battle of Alligator Creek, as it's also known, and the Battle of Edson's Ridge. So we're going to go ahead and move on. So uh, since the Battle of Edson's Ridge, there are several important developments in the campaign started up. So for one, I want to go ahead and mention that the American aircraft carrier, the Wasp, was sunk by a Japanese torpedo from a submarine. And this made it the second American aircraft carrier sunk by submarines. So now there's the only aircraft carrier the Americans had in the Solomon area was the Hornet. So we talked a little bit about the Japanese kind of, you know, using the submarines, kind of a go-for-broke strategy, where oftentimes submarines aren't usually meant to go up against, like, giant battleships and aircraft carriers. But oftentimes they would target those, um, those you know, those massive ships. And even though kind of in the long run it wasn't really as effective as, like, the American strategy of going after the merchant ships was, in in this battle you could honestly argue I think it is still pretty effective. Because, I mean, that's that's a losing two aircraft carriers submarines, that's a big fucking deal. Yeah, that's that's a major loss for the U.S. So that definitely hampers any chance of Guadalcanal kind of ending quickly. Yeah, I mean, we're we're really just lucky the fact that you know our manufacturing was so great. The fact that we were able to manufacture more aircraft carriers, and they didn't completely you know losing those aircraft carriers didn't you know completely hamper our naval abilities for the rest of the war. But and moreover, along with that, the Seventh Marines finally began landing on Guadalcanal, reinforcing the island with thousands of fresh troops. So the, Mar- the first Marines were alone for the longest time, and now finally the Seventh Marines have started landing. So, and following the uh, following Edson's Ridge, uh, the Imperial headquarters of the Japanese military finally agreed that Guadalcanal was a quote all-out attack, and that they would need to devote significant resources to take the island. So we talked about previously, they're like. Oh, this is just a you know smaller you know thing. Oh, we could just you know send in troops piecemeal. Now they're like, okay, we've actually got to take this shit seriously. It seems like the Americans are really here to stay. So, and then uh, so they resolve as a result of this, the Japanese resolved to send the 30th Division and the 8th Tank Regiment to Guadalcanal. And uh, this new influx of soldiers was part of a new campaign to retake Guadalcanal, along with uh, the uh, along with Raby, uh, Port Moresby, San Cristobal, the Louisades, and the Russell Islands. So they're kind of going not just for Guadalcanal, but they plan to you know take a lot of different islands in the Solomon Islands chain. So, and but as for the Marines, there was kind of after Edson's Ridge, there was a few weeks of relative quiet on the ground. Uh, the Marines started settling to the new environment, and they're kind of building. They started building shacks and lean tos, and you know they took part in the regular duties of combat, such as patrolling, sentry duty, etc. So it was kind of a bit of a lull. In the combat after Edson's Ridge, that really that battle really did take a lot out of uh, the Japanese and also particularly the Marines too. So it was a very near run thing. So now I want to also talk a little bit. About, I haven't mentioned the disease all that much, so I want to go ahead and talk about this. The disease is kind of often one of those neglected factors in combat 
I mean, you often hear the, you know, the statistics during the Civil War, for instance, more soldiers died from disease than they did from combat. And that largely has been the case throughout history. I don't know exactly what the numbers would be for World War II, but no, in Guadalcanal, they were, uh, let's just say, not good. So uh, dengue fever in particular was really bad, but malaria was definitely worse. So just as one example, in August, the U.S. hospitals admitted 900 men with malaria. In October, the number raised to 2,630. So, like, more than doubling over the course of only a few months. And then, uh, so, the life of the Japanese, though, wasn't really all that much better. So, Guadalcanal for them became known as, quote, Starvation Island, due to the terrible logistical hurdle of supplying the Imperial Japanese Army. Solomons are a long, long way from Japan. I, I, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you noticed, but, uh, so, it's hard for, I mean, if, if it's hard for the Japanese to supply troops that are closer to their own home, it's going to be really hard for them to supply troops to Guadalcanal, and it's kind of one of those, another thing you don't really, you know, think about oftentimes is just logistics, you know, everybody focuses on the weapons and, you know, the commanders and everything, but, I mean, if you can't keep, if you can't keep your men fed and you can't keep your men supplied, I mean, their morale is going to plummet. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons, I don't know if you knew this, Liam, but during World War II, I actually just learned this fact the other day, the U.S. built a dedicated, like, trawler that was meant just for making ice cream. Yeah, I've heard about this. It was something like, <laughs> the the captive like japanese prisoners would hear about the ice cream ship uh and it would instantly kill like their morale oh and, yeah it, I mean, it, it was a sign of like we are having to struggle to build ships and like get bullets for our guns meanwhile these people can turn an entire ship into just an ice cream maker what yeah like it, yeah it's like you know you we're out here eating you know bugs and everything and dying of malaria and these guys get fucking ice cream cones and like, you know, like different flavors and everything. Like I remember reading that it could like, you know, produce, I think something like, you know, 100, you know, like gallons of ice cream, like every shift or something insane like that. And it's just like, yeah, that is, that is, that is definitely going to raise your morale. Just having those kinds of creature comforts and, you know, exactly. and that, you know, you really don't think about, but, uh, so rations for the Japanese were reduced to one third of what they would normally and uh, th throughout, throughout pretty much the entire campaign, they were just continually reduced. And the 11th and 13th construction units were dispersed along supply routes and basically told to find your own food, which is not what you want to oh. hear if you're an army soldier on a remote jungle island. Just like, oh, fucking find your own shit. Like, good luck with that. Good luck. Maybe find a frog uh, <laughs> or any other like kind of jungle rat. Yeah, go they go fishing in the. Yeah, go go spearfishing the river and just trying to get eaten by alligators, you know, because there's a creek literally named Alligator Creek. Like, <laughs> or, or better yet, it's just kill an alligator, eat yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah have fun with that. Yeah, <laughs> good luck with that. And then so, and the hospitals as well for Japanese were not much better, as thousands were also ended up dying in the very makeshift, unsupplied hospitals. So. They're not having a good time either. Nobody's having a good time on Guadalcanal. So yeah, this is not a happy then, place. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> and then so uh, following Essen's Ridge, Vandegrift decided to launch uh, several, because kind of, as part of the new American plan, Vandegrift decided to launch several moderate-sized offensives against the Japanese along the Botanical River and to expel small groups of Japanese left from the battle and prevent larger ones from getting in the striking distance of the Marine perimeter. So there's still kind of these soldiers that are left over, you know, kind of stragglers from the battle. So Edson wants to go ahead and push those guys out and take up positions to prevent the Japanese from getting too much closer to Henderson Field. So uh, the Marines ended up engaging the Japanese in small engagements along the Tenakau, but the planning for this operation really wasn't there. 
it was just a, kind of a disorganized mess and didn't really achieve all that much initially. And then uh, meanwhile, though, the Japanese continued along with their air raids, launching a raid of 27 Betty bombers. These are twin engine bombers with, you know, pretty significant payloads and 42 zeros in one day. So and this raid, a coast squadron managed to set them early. And so the Americans intercepted the attack, meeting them with three, 34 Wildcat fighters, making this raid the largest air battle the, the entire campaign. So I'm going to go ahead and just talk a little bit about kind of the air war over Guadalcanal. So in this particular raid, all the American pilots ended up returning, and the Japanese losses were seven Bettys uh, and five Zeros, which were shot down, and then a two crash landed or ditched on the way back. So some of the pilots managed to get out, but um, I, don't, I don't know if they made it back or not. But uh, So all the bombers, though, were damaged, and so it was going to take them time to repair them. So now, an interesting, you know, one thing interesting of note is so that the Japanese noted that the Wildcat pilots consistently avoided combat with the Zeros and just went after the bombers. So we're going to talk a little bit about the design of the Wildcats here. So the Wildcat was, you know, an early American fighter, came on a B, I believe, about 1941. And then so its design, it had a lot of armor, which American fighters typically had. That was something that American fighters were known for in World War II, was that they had pretty good armor. Like the P-40 Warhawk was, you know, known for that as well. It was very, uh, had a speed of about 318 miles per hour. So it was slower, less maneuverable than the Zeros, which had a speed of about 331 miles per hour. But it was also armed with four 50 caliber machine guns. So that's a pretty significant armament. And then, uh, so the Zeros, though, were very maneuverable, armed with about 20 mo- two 20 millimeter cannons and two 30 caliber machine guns. So, but the thing about the Zero, though, is it was very lightly armored. I mean, if you get a good shot on the Zero, it didn't take a lot to take it down. Whereas you could, the Wildcat could take a bit of a punishment. So you kind of have, if, if you look at pictures of the Wildcat, it's a very short little stubby fighter, you know? Like, it, it doesn't look like the most aerodynamic, you know, thing. It looks very much like, you know, a tank can, pretty much, with, with you know, guns on it and a propeller. But, I mean, and so, like, the, basically the strategy that the American pilots ended up using was that they realized very quickly that engaging in, like, dogfights with the Zeros was largely just fruitless because the Zeros are way more maneuverable and they're going to be able to outturn you any day of the week. So what they would end up doing was they would just climb to a higher altitude and essentially dive down and just make passes at the zeros and, you know, just strafe them as they're diving down. And then, you know, if they didn't take them out, they would just go ahead and you know, climb up the altitude again and just dive down too. And this is, a, and try it again. So this is a strategy was also used amongst the P-40 pilots that were uh, a part of the American Flying Tigers over in China. So this is something that, you know, American pilots learned quickly on it was that you know like hey our fighters might not be as maneuverable but you know they they're they're pretty well armored so we you kind of using these ambush tactics was it was pretty effective for them yeah they uh very clearly adopted the the ignore the escort just hit the thing with the the big bombs because yeah, that's how yeah. we win this war that's how we win this battle doesn't matter yeah, if exactly. they, they uh, as long as we destroy their number of capable bombers on target yeah because they're like hey you know the guys at henderson field they cannot afford to lose you know a ton of fighters i mean they, they're not going to be able to replace them very easily so you know if the japanese end up bombing the heck out of the airfield which you know intent what comes later then it's going to be pretty bad for the americans so yeah they're just focusing on the bombers and then uh, just kind of ignoring the fighters because they can kind of take that punishment so and i also like to mention too the reason that this system worked really well. One of the reasons was that of the really effective Coast Watcher system. So the Coast Watchers on the island were able to very often give early warnings to the Americans. So the Americans knew that the Japanese pilots were coming. So that's what would allow them to kind of lay these ambushes and intercept them uh, very effect- effectively. So 
Now, the Japanese at this point, though, they started to develop another airfield on the island of Buin. Uh, it's off the coast of Bougainwe- uh, Bo- Bougainville. That, that name is, is so weird to me. I don't, I don't know what, Bo- Bougainville? Like, it's, I don't know. But, uh, it's off the- yeah, Bougainville, yeah. But uh, so it was off the coast of uh, Papua New Guinea. So uh, the the idea of this is they wanted to say that it was a bit closer to Guadalcanal so that they could bring more zeros to bear against the Americans. Uh, however, it didn't really work out very well because the, the site that they picked was just awful. It was just the swampy terrain that was really low to the ground. And then the plans they had for it, you know, were just very defective. And then so it kept on getting delayed and gala- delayed. And then so it didn't really end up being used all that much either. So it was kind of just a, a waste. And then uh, so on September 30th, Admiral Nimitz visited Henderson Field to appraise himself the situation. So his plane got lost on the way over, but they were able to find the airfield using a map from National Geographic. So <laughs> that's just great. I just, I, 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 so sorry, what? I didn't say anything, no. Oh yeah, I was just gonna. I, I just picture them like you know using some kind of like you know like map on the pick back of like you know like the Heights magazine or something. Like, look, it's right over here, guys. Like, just how how sad is it at this the point in the war that you're having to use a map from like National Geographic to find an airfield? Like, I don't, exactly. I don't... Just it really shows like the chaos of early 20th century combat and like even beforehand, like going back to you know ancient warfare but especially like 20th century where we're getting all of this new technology we have planes that can go hundreds of miles we have tanks but we haven't like figured out how to like effectively use map making skills for these things like yeah we understand cartography on foot or by train or horseback but like nobody's ever plotted a map at this point going 200 miles an hour over the ocean <laughs> exactly you can't really it's not easy to eyeball like, what would have happened if you just didn't happen to have that National Geographic, like, issue on hand? Like, would he just never have found it? Like, would he just, like, crashed into, like, the jungle and then the entire course of the war has changed, you know? Like, who knows? And then, so, uh, so as it was landing, though, Nimitz witnessed firsthand the terrible conditions the Marines are facing on Guadalcanal, and he discussed with Adam Gormley and Vandegrift the possibility of reinforcing Guadalcanal and relieving the 1st Marine Division. Uh, though at the end of the day, they did have a few of these discussions, but at the end of the day, no decision was actually made as to what they're going to do. So uh, when Nimitz ended up returning, he was greeted with the news uh, from the combat intelligence units. Uh, so they started talking about the state of their coding system. And uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't good. So uh, the quote is saying, uh, the enemy is copying our communication methods with good success, and thus we are unable to read his mail to any great extent. So uh, to make matters worse, the Japanese changed their entire communication system, causing the American intelligence to basically have to throw out any information, any tools they were using, and then just pretty much start fresh. So this is, you know, I imagine this would have been massively frustrating for the American coders for sure. And then so despite this intelligence blackout, though, however, the Americans did know that a very large Japanese offensive was incoming. I mean, you, you can still, even if you can't intercept the codes, you can still see, you know, you can track you know, if an offensive is coming, you know, like just looking at, you know, air traffic and ground traffic and, you know, like naval traffic and everything. You, you see a lot of ships going around. You're like, hey, there's something big is probably going on here. So A lot of ships keep going from the home islands to like this one area that we know for a fact is a staging ground for like troops. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, something is going to happen. So... 
Uh, meanwhile, though, the Tokyo Express kept on running, and the American pilots went after them and pretty much a long, continuous cat-and-mouse game. So the Japanese are trying to land troops. The Americans are trying to sink the ships. So, you know, Taylor's Lowell's time. So uh, on August, I'm sorry, not August, October 6th, the Marines launched another small offensive along the Botanical. Uh, this offensive, though, was much better planned and executed, and so they managed to capture the Japanese positions along the East Bank, and it managed to totally annihilate the 4th Infantry Regiment of the Japanese Army. So this operation ended up significantly impacting the planned Japanese October 20th offensive as they're planning on launching the offensive um, from those positions along Botanical. So the Japanese are trying to launch their offensive from these positions, and the Americans are capturing those positions. So they're just like, oh, well, shit, you know, we've got to start over from scratch. So, and then uh, throw the entire playbook out the window. Yep. You know, war is. Um, where it's just a constantly shifting kind of game. And it can just change in, you know, a moment's notice. And so this leads us, though, to the Battle of Cape Esperance on October 11th um, through the 12th. So this is a major naval battle in which the Japanese reinforcement convoy of several uh, destroyers and two seaplane tenders, along with three heavy cruisers and two destroyers uh, sent to bombard Henderson Field, were ambushed at night by a U.S. Navy force of two heavy and two light cruisers and five destroyers. So the U- during this battle, the U.S. managed to sink three destroyers and one heavy cruiser in engagement and killed almost 600 Japanese sailors. So one thing that's interesting about this battle is that it occurred at night. And previously, the Japanese were very good at fighting at night. It was something they you know, took a lot of pride in. So it's kind of hurt, you know, the Imperial Japanese Navy's, you know, pride. But it didn't end up actually stopping the Japanese from sending reinforcements. So they, you know, the Japanese lose some guys, but it's, it's not the end for them by any means. Um, and then so this leads us to the high-speed convoy. So on the next day, on October 13th, the first army units began land on Guadalcanal when 2,850 men of the 164th Infantry Regiment began landing on the islands. So I also want to mention, too, that these guys are National Guard units, which I just think is, you know, interesting. You know, like, you know, we typically hear of National Guard units, you know, like, in you know, you know, being used in combat today, they're not typically like put, you know, like on the ground, you know, the really fiercest fights. But these guys were, yeah, they were, you know, you know, they're, you know, you're, you're, sorry, what, what are you saying? Oh, I mean, just, just imagine that, like, you, like at the time and today where you are just like a regular person, you've decided to sign up and do your part, but like you've got a family, you can't, you, you are the principal breadwinner or whatever, you can't abandon them. So you sign up for the National Guard. And then all of a sudden you get a notice saying, hey, you've been you've been drafted or you called into service. We're sending you to a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific full of malaria uh, and death. Uh, good <laughs> luck. Have fun. Also, this is one of your first times leaving the country. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Just like, where the, what the fuck is a Guadalcanal? You know, like, <laughs> just. Is it like, you, a, you get... like, did, did they forget the space? It's the Guadalcanal? Like, are we right? going to Venice? Like, am, what? Am I, am I saying that right? Are we going to Italy? I don't know. But yeah, you you really got to feel for these these poor bastards in the National Guard. So uh, finally, though, the Marines were not alone. So that was good for them. Not so good for the guys in the National Guard. But uh, so loss along the positions um, along the Tanka River, along with the loss at Cape Esperance, led the Japanese to try a new strategy. So their plan was to send a convoy of six troop transports escorted by six destroyers and basically ferry about 4,500 troops to the island in order to join troops of planned October offensive. So these basically are trying to rush over, you know, in a very, you know, in a heavily armed high-speed convoy, just to rush over almost 5,000 guys to try to aid in the planned offensive. So originally, these troops were supposed to proceed after the destruction of the Texas Air Force, but the urgency of the situation demanded this requirement was dropped. 
So already it's it's not it, you know there there's some there's there's a couple things that I would be concerned with if I were you know a, um, a if I were you know in the in the Imperial Japanese Navy. I mean like you're like wait a second I thought the Americans were the Air Force was supposed to be destroyed. Oh they're not destroyed. Oh shit like <laughs> yeah, th- yeah those. Tip- that that all that stuff of like the subterfuge of we can't openly tell our people we're losing the war. That's all now coming back into play of of slowly the troops start to realize no we're we're not winning. Things are not yeah, going things, well for us. Yeah, like things. I mean, the I mean, it's not you know totally. It's, this isn't like Iwo Jima yet, where we know for a fact the Japanese are going to lose. But it's also you know it's not going well for them either. You know they, they had several chances to really kind of land a knockout blow, and both of those chances failed. So. And then so meanwhile, though, uh, in, in accordance with this or in, in kind of cooperation with this, the Japanese begin shelling Henderson Field with their land artillery for the very first time. So Anderson Field just starts getting pummeled by the Japanese land artillery. And then which, which should give you an idea about just how close the Japanese were to Henderson Field, the fact that they were able to hit it with not just their bombers, but their land artillery, So which is pretty nuts. And then Jesus. so... Yeah, at this time, several Japanese battleships also came and arranged the airfield in an attempt to bombard it. So with these two forces sailing Henderson Field, it was hoped that they would be uh, unable, the Americans would be unable to intercept the convoy. So they would be too busy worrying about the land artillery and the Navy to go ahead and actually intercept the convoy. So uh, when the um, when the battleship started bombing Henderson Field, Henderson Field's defenders immediately started rushing their dugouts and much of the airfield immediately went up in flames as the battleship was pummeling the shit out of this airfield. I mean, when we're talking, you know, these, some of these battleships have like, you know, you know, 14, 16 inch guns. I mean, it's a, you're shooting a shell. that's like, you know, the size of a, like a, you know, an engine block or bigger in some cases. So these are, the, these are not little. Th- things are not going to go well for the people on the ground when they're facing a battleship. No, no. And you know, the, in the range of, you know, miles and miles or more, it's just insane. So uh, the Japanese aboard the ships is, uh, uh, excuse me, on board their ships off the coast, described it as it was looking like a fireworks display. So, and not to mention one of the shells like exploded right near Vendegrift and either killed him too. He managed to get in the dugout just in time. So uh, the Americans could only reply with their PT boats, which ended up firing torpedoes, the Japanese battleships, none of which hit, of course. Uh, course. They did though. Yeah. I should also mention the jet, the American torpedoes at this time were just absolute shit. Uh, they were used, or they were, you know, kind of de- designed with this, like, you know, kind of the the idea was that you had like a little magnetic, you know, like little device that was supposed to, when the torpedo got close to the ship, it was supposed to kind of sense, you know, that it was there and explode. But they were so faulty, they must not, that didn't end up happening. And even if there was a direct hit, sometimes they just wouldn't explode. So it took I, the I've Americans. Read about these, yeah, I've read about these torpedoes. Uh, the whole reason they they didn't work right is because they were so expensive to make. The U.S. War Department decided not to test them. That they were like, eh, it should just work fine out of the box. Just make them and send them to our ships. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, right? Test weapons? When have we ever done that? You know, come on, guys. Yeah, and then, do you like, know how much it costs to make a single torpedo? Like, $10. <laughs> That's a lot of money at this time. What? Well, what, what what could a torpedo cost, Michael? Ten dollars. <laughs> it's for your for your arrest for our arrest development fans out there. But um, and then yeah, and also there would sometimes just curve back as well, like make a U. There was actually a case of a U.S. submarine that ended up sinking itself. I think it was in 1944 because the torpedo shot out and then did like a little U bend and then came back and hit the submarine. So Jesus, just, just yeah, we're. 
the the uh, the ordinance department is not sending their best. So we'll 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 say that. So, uh, so despite the faulty torpedoes, though, the the battleships did end up uh, ending their bombardment five minutes early. So they had they had some kind of impact, you know, like but not not much, but something. And then so uh, the so there thereafter this you know instance of the battleships just bombarding the fuck out of Henderson Field became known to all the men on Henderson Field as the bombardment, which should really tell you how bad it was, considering that they're pretty much getting bombed. Like, every day is a bombardment for them. But this one is the one that's known as the bombardment. So, and there's, then... Uh, there's no greater one than, than this one. Exactly. So, over the course of this bombardment, the Japanese the two Japanese battleships fired a total of 973 shells. So, so a magic fuck ton. And then so uh, the very next morning, the Marines awoke to Henderson Field just completely devastated. The airstrip was completely unusable. All the aviation fuel was burned, and all but seven of their, of their uh, dive and torpedo bombers were destroyed. So you could really say since the Navy got wiped out at uh, the, uh, the very first naval battle in Guadalcanal and leaving the Marines, Marines stranded, this is probably the lowest point we've seen the Marines after just Henderson Field just gets devastated by these battleships. So, and then, uh, so the fighters ended up faring a little bit better. Uh, out of 42 Wildcats, uh, 24 end up remaining operational, along with uh, four P-400 fighters and two P-39s. So, amazingly, though, only 42 men were killed in the, in the uh, bombardment. So that was the only really good outcome of it, the, the fact that, you know, the men managed to know what's coming and they got to the dugout just in time to where you know, not too many of them died. But uh, So, at the end of this bombardment, Yamato declared that the Cactus Air Force was, quote, suppressed and ordered his fleet to steam south to find and destroy the U.S. fleet. So, famous last words. <laughs> and then, uh, although, I'll, I mean, Yamato wouldn't die until 1943, but yeah. Anyways. He I, had it coming. He, he did have it coming, absolutely. And then, uh, so, although the convoy had been spotted 200 miles away previously, if the Americans didn't know where it was going now, before the bombardment, they definitely knew where it was going now. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what happens, you know, when your enemy bombards an area. You kind of know, like, hey, they're probably going to go there now. <laughs> like, they seem to have a so. lot of interest. They just bombed our guys on the beach for 30 straight minutes. Uh, actually, sir, it was 25. The PT boats. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a great contribution the PT boats made. And then, uh, so, <laughs> they did help to a degree. And then, uh, so, Vandegrift uh, ended up sending out a message urgently calling for aviation fuel and immediate support. For the Wasp refueling and Scott's uh, fleet recovering after the Battle of Cape Esperance, uh, very few were in an actual position to help. So uh, Admiral Fitch did end up sending 17 SPD dive bombers and 20 Wildcats to Guadalcanal from the Spirit of Santo, along with a reserve of gasoline. So they're going to get a little bit in there. Uh, and the Japanese, uh, not content with their devastation, ended up launching two additional air raids that day, which Cactus Air Force managed to fend off, but the cost of most of their fuel. So... And then uh, as the convoy got closer to Guadalcanal, the Americans managed to send up a force to intercept them, but they were unsuccessful and only damaged one destroyer and sank none of the transports. So, and then at midnight, the convoy ended up arriving at, at Tassafaranga, I can I kind of pronounce some of these words, and began unloading its soldiers. So, after the convoy unloaded all of its soldiers, the Cactus Air Force did manage to kind of resurrect itself and strike back, sinking a few of the ships in the convoy. So there are a couple of successes after this. They were kind of get back in there and sink a few of the transports. So, But despite the small victory, though, the Marines were still in a very tight spot. So Vandegrift estimated that there were now 15,000 Japanese troops on Guadalcanal. And, you know, the Americans at this point are still at about 10,000, 11,000. 
And although there were still more Marines, um, I'm sorry, actually, the number of Marines actually had increased in sense. So there were still more Marines at this point, but half of them, though, were in absolutely no shape to undertake offensive operations. So there's still a lot of men that are just completely worn out from either disease or just prolonged combat or starvation. So, and then, um, so yeah, realistically, you could probably give the Marines numbers that are probably, you know, for, as, as for men who could actually effectively fight in combat, you could say they're probably worth a good deal less than the Japanese numbers. So, uh, Vanegrave told his superiors that in order for the Americans to win, he would need the Navy to achieve control of the sea around Guadalcanal and at least one more division to undertake offensive operations. So, which, Yes, I mean, like if you if you're going to fight in any kind of island campaign, you absolutely it is absolutely essential that you need control of the sea because if you don't have control of the sea, the enemy has the ability to effectively you give all the initiative to the enemy because they're able to land troops wherever they like, and then you you cannot stop them. You can only basically pair their thrusts, and then you can't stop them from actually really undertaking offensive operations. So. And then so at this point, we had a bit of a shakeup in command as well among the Navy. So uh, October 15th, uh, or by October 15th, uh, Admiral Halsey or had had an, enough of Gormley's defeatism and ended up sacking him. I'm, I'm sorry, not Admiral, not Admiral Halsey. Uh, Admiral Nimitz ended up being, uh, had, had enough of Gormley's defeatism and ended up sacking him, replacing him with William uh, Bull Halsey as theater commander. So that was his nickname was yeah, Bull. Yeah, for kind of... The Bull... Yeah, the bowl, right? Like, <laughs> that, which is, which is, I'm gonna say, is a pretty great nickname. I, if you can have a nickname, bowl is a pretty good one to have. So, and I haven't talked a lot, a little bit. I'm sorry, I haven't talked a lot about Gormley thus far. And his issue really was that he kind of just, you know, he wasn't necessarily a bad commander. I mean, you know, he, yeah, he has a pretty sound tactical mind and a sound strategic mind, but he kind of just became, you know, over the course of this campaign, the stresses just kind of got too much you know, became too much for him to where he kind of would just bury himself in his work. And then just kind of, you know, he would stay in his office, you know, his, his you know, unair conditioned office for, you know, hours on end. It wouldn't take any kind of time for himself, which like I can, you know, understand, you know, because as a commander, I mean, the weight of your decisions, you know, the fact that your decisions can lead to a lot of men either going home to their mothers or, end up, you know, end up dying. I mean, that sort of thing weighs heavy on you. And so he kind of just, with all the stresses of battle, and uh, he kind of just became, you know, a l- little bit defeatist and was kind of just like, ah, I don't really know how we can really pull this off. And, you know, so it so it was probably better that Nimitz go ahead and, uh, you know, end up sacking him for this reason. So, so instead then, uh, he put in uh, somebody who was, you know, brash, strong, like a bull. Yeah, like a bull. Yeah. And like one interesting tidbit I remember reading was that, one of the kind of the first things that Halsey did when he kind of took command was that he told his men like, Hey guys, you know, previously the Navy, you know, uniform, you know, for hit for Gormley's command had dictated that, you know, like, like most of the Navy ships of the time or Navy commands of the time was that, you know, your men had to wear, you know, like ties and everything there. But, you know, Halsey was like, nah, you guys don't have to wear ties anymore. And so for the time that was kind of like, you know, a suit like kind of not wearing a tie, you know, you know because things are very formal in the 1940s was kind of associated with kind of like a, working class kind of like rough and tumble you know like oh i'm about to get a fist fight you know like let me take off my tie you know so like that kind of gave a little bit of kind of a morale boost you know to some of his men and kind of told you know them kind of like you know what kind of an, what kind of commander halsey was going to be so uh it's also it's also one of those things of we're at war gentlemen you don't need to stand there for five minutes and tie your tie 
I need yeah. you out here doing war. Yeah, I mean, it's like the whole thing with, you know, Lincoln and Grant and everything. Like, you know, like all of these generals talk shit about Grant when Lincoln appointed him and everything. Like, oh, my God, he's a drunk. You know, he's like, you know, lays all this stuff. And he's like, I don't care. He fights. You know, like all of you guys have been getting your asses kicked, you know, by, you know, Bobby Lee for like, you know, the past, you know, two years. So I need somebody who's actually going to go out there and be aggressive. So. And then so. Uh, and Halsey was also very well liked among the enlisted men too. So kind of like, you know, the, the typical kind of like, you know, soldiers kind of, you know, admiral, you know, so guy who is aggressive and then, you know, the troops love him. That's always something you like to see. So, and then uh, when Halsey received the news, he cried, quote, uh, or the news of his, you know, him being, you know, the new commander, he cried, quote, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, this is the hot potato that have ever, that they have ever given me. <laughs> so, very, very typical 1940s he uh, sounds, Southern Virginia man here. He sounds very much like a cartoon character. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that's how a lot of these, you know, like, you know, generals, I think, you know, to a degree, like, like you know, look at Patton and everything, you know, like, look at some of the things he did. Some of these guys really are very much were like, you know, you're like typical Hollywood, you know, like general types or admiral types. And then so... Uh, immediately, Halsey decided to make several more changes, so he ended up moving the main fleet base from Auckland to Nomea, which is closer to Guadalcanal, so better for communications. And he also seized the headquarters ashore from free French officials, which I find kind of funny because, like, as Gormley was the commander, like, up until this time, he'd actually kept his office, like, on his ship, like, off the coast of the island, because he didn't really, like, you know, have the guts to kind of, like, confront these, like, free French officials and be like, you know, hey, I kind of need your headquarters. And then Halsey comes into command and they're just like, nah, this is mine now. Like, I know you guys are also trying to fight a war, but this is more important, which, you know, is, is fair. And then so he also ended up issuing orders to his subordinates, I can speak today, which were, uh, quote, strike, repeat, strike. So just kind of, again, going with that kind of aggressive, offensive spirit. So yeah, don't, uh, don't very- let the enemy recover. Just hit him hard and then hit him hard again. Yeah, I, again, it's, it's kind of like I'm, I'm kind of drawing another Civil War comparison here, but it's kind of like, you know, Grant's campaign during the, uh, in, in Virginia in like 1864 through 1865, you know, like people, you know, kind of derided him as a butcher, you know, so he lost so many men, but Grant's goal was to keep hitting Lee again and again and again, so that, because he knew Lee couldn't recover, you know, the amount of men he was going to lose, whereas Grant could. So Hollis has kind of got the same idea, like, we just need, you know, the American, he's like, he's like, guys, like, we have the numbers, you know, we have the manufacturing, we have the weapons, we just got to hit these guys again and again until they stop breathing. So, and then uh, very soon, though, the Marines would once more be in the fight for their lives, the Battle of Henderson Field, and that is where we'll pick up next time. So, this episode is kind of more of a, like, you know, I mean, there's definitely some big stuff that goes on, you know, like Henderson Field, of course, getting, you know, shelled off by the Japanese Navy was very huge, but it's like a, a little bit more of kind of like an interlude kind of episode. So, but what did you yeah, think? Things is there are going anything? On... I mean, I think the most interesting thing is like the Tokyo Express gets a, a brief mention in this episode for for history fans. That convoy that we talked about in the middle part of the episode, that is not just a one-off thing. The Japanese are going to be running ships up and down through the Solomon Islands this entire campaign. Uh, and the Americans just are constantly fighting a, a battle against this, uh, basically an express line from the home islands to the, the main combat theaters, uh, trying to sink convoys when they can to prevent uh, their Marines from being overrun by fresh Japanese troops. I think, honestly, that is one of my favorite things to talk about when we talk 
when you're talking about the Solomon Islands, just this constant Japanese struggle to resupply. Uh, and in one case, I believe even for Guadalcanal, successfully breaking through to Guadalcanal itself, but then realizing they did not have the right ships to make landings and drop off their supplies. So they just had to throw it all overboard and hoped it washed ashore. Oh, that's got to hurt. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, no, it's very fascinating. And you really got to admire the bravery of these, of these Japanese sailors. The fact that they're able to, we talked about how, you know, they were steaming towards the island and, you know, they were, you know, the idea was that they go ahead and proceed after the American Air Force on the island had been suppressed, but that didn't happen. But they just went ahead with it anyway, and so they lost, you know, several of their ships. So, and then, uh, you know, and the, these, you know, the, there's a reason that, you know, the um, the sound between, I think, Guadalcanal and I believe Tulagi was known as Iron Bottom Sound because of just the number of ships that were sunk there. And, I mean, you can still go to Guadalcanal today. You can see some, like, you know, wrecked ships and, you know, like, you know, tanks and everything. That's why I think it's very... Another kind of, you know, fascinating aspect about a lot of these little Pacific islands is that some of them are still very much unchanged. I mean, you you go to like, you know, you know, Bastogne and everything. And of course, they're going to have rebuilt, you know, like a lot of, you know, the, the buildings and everything that you may have suffered from you know, the war, you know, bomb damage, that sort of thing. But, you know, you go to Guadalcanal and, you know, you might be in the middle of the jungle and just see like a zero, you know, just like crash there. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely. I mean, those the spots where there is less civilization, uh, and where war was fought, those are always the most interesting places to look back on. Because yeah, you could just be wandering through the jungle, and all of a sudden you find a a P forty nine that got shot down over the island and crashed. Uh, it's yeah, it's like a time capsule. Exactly. Yeah, you, it's literally like a time machine almost. Because I mean. There's no, like, modern structures around you other than trees and this plane from 70 to 80 years ago. <laughs> which also is just crazy thinking about the fact that, you know, World War II happened about, like, 80 years ago, which is just insane, you know, just to really think about, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, this is going to make me sound old, but, like, I remember growing up and everything and, like, going to the library and checking out, like, books about World War II and being like, oh, this is, like, you know, this book was published in like you know the um the 90s or something i was like oh you know this is the 50th anniversary of world war ii you know when this book was published and now going on like 80 years like geez it's it's fun going back and looking at history and realizing oh that was 90 years ago we're almost out of a full century from from world war ii oh jesus you know what really fascinates me too is you know because i've also i've been working on a series about uh, for this podcast about the history of war elephants which like look forward to that because that's going to be a lot of fun but um and then so like it kind of blew my mind a little bit reading about it just how close you know a lot of the roman conquests were to like alexander the great like i had previously thought that those you know you know generations and generations of men have kind of spanned those two time periods so between like the second punic war and like alexander the great's conquest it's really not that far away it's like maybe a hundred a couple hundred years like it's kind of crazy uh, that's one of my fa favorite things about history is just the ability to step back from it all and not just look at things selectively and go like, well, when did things in history happen together? Uh, like famous people or infamous people being born in the same year, but like one continues on much longer in life than the other. And we, we associate them with a later stage than we did the other person. 
it's you know history is a fun thing to explore i love it yeah well i i remember like seeing a post somewhere it was talking about how you know like the uh like the american you know the gunsling and everything of like the wild west was like roughly you know like they say about maybe 1850 to around 1890 and like you know the very last of the you know like french pirates along the caribbean you know were like kind of like you know snuffed out around the 1860s too and of course the samurai you know were around the you know the same time period like 1860s to the 1880s so theoretically you could actually have a historical novel where like an american gunslinger a samurai and like a retired french pirate like all got together and went on some kind of mission together and like it, it wouldn't be like historically inaccurate like it, that is like a distinct possibility so i believe you just described a dungeons and dragons party <laughs> pretty pretty much just just historical dnd but uh some, somehow we got from Gualcan out of dnd but uh <laughs> i'm cool with it so i think uh I think that makes it a good time to go ahead and call it. So uh, thanks again for joining me, Liam. Uh, go ahead and uh, check us out again next week. We're going to go in for part four in the Global Canal campaign. Go ahead and check us out on uh, Patreon as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever else you find your podcasts. And as a, rem- as a reminder, if you go ahead and donate to the Patreon, you get access to bonus content such as you know bonus episodes as well as the Discord and other cool perks. So like early access. So yeah, so... Uh, as of uh, as of right now, yeah. So Guadalcanal is just it's going great for both sides. I hope it continues that way. <laughs> Surely it will. Nothing else can go wrong. Nothing else can go wrong whatsoever. As as everyone in military history definitely knows. So, all right. Take care, everyone. Bye.